Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Overcoming Chronic Illness podcast. My name is Dr. Brian Raid, and I'm a naturopathic doctor, and I am excited to be joined today by another one of my naturopathic colleagues, um, Dr. Sanja Tambrick. Um, Dr. Tambrick is going to be speaking with me today about a topic that I'm really, really interested in. It's uh, something that's been kind of a bit newer on my radar in the last uh, several months. Um, it's something called vitamin D receptor resistance. And so we're going to get into all the nooks and crannies of that, but it's something that I've started working with, with my patients, testing them for it. Um, and they've been working with the treatment for it and, um, starting to see some positive clinical results uh, with some cases and something that I'm quite, quite excited about. So very happy to have her on the podcast. Um, just before she joins me here, um, I just wanted to let everybody know, um, who's listening that, um, I do have an, an online course, um, for, um, the general public. Um, it's called the overcoming chronic illness course. Um, and basically it's something that I put together, uh, maybe two, one, maybe one and a half years ago, um, maybe not quite two years ago. And it's essentially, um, an eight module course that goes over all the major topics that um, a lot of folks with complex chronic illness are dealing with. Um, things like mitochondrial dysfunction, chronic infections, heavy metals and other detoxification issues, um, mold illness, um, histamine issues like mast cell activation syndrome and, and many others. And so within these modules, I go over um, them in, in uh, quite a lot of depth. I mean, not getting into like research studies and this and that, like it's, it's, it is a course that's designed for, um, the general public, uh, the general populace. Um, of course the general populace probably doesn't think much about complex chronic illness, but for folks who are dealing with, um, complex chronic illness, it's, it's for lay people. Um, but I've had some really, um, uh, humbling feedback from some of my patients who are, you know, I would say they've been, um, steeping in the, um, uh, this world of complex chronic illness, doing a lot of digging, um, you know, reading research articles, like attending courses courses and summits and all of that. And, um, had some really, um, uh, humbling feedback, just saying that this is something that, um, uh, tied a lot of things together for them. It, you know, brought an additional level of, um, insight that, you know, they hadn't received from other um, sources that they'd access information from before. So it seems to be quite useful, even for folks who are, you know, quite well versed in, um, in this, in this realm. So, um, if uh, this, the course is something that you might be interested in, um, I do offer the first two modules of the course at no charge. Um, if you sign up for my uh, mailing list, then um, you get uh, when you get your welcome email from that, um, then it um, will give you a link to the first two modules so you can access those. And, and one thing I forgot to mention is that with each of the modules, there are these, as I call them, cheat sheets that folks can either email or print off and give to their clinicians. Because one of the challenges that folks run into is that they might have a clinician who's you know really mold savvy, but they don't know a whole lot about SIBO, or they don't know a whole lot about heavy metals, or they don't know a whole lot about um, Lyme. And so um, this is the, each one of the modules has a cheat sheet that is designed to be given to one's clinician to give kind of a, an overview of the topic at hand, tests to consider, treatment um, ideas to consider, et cetera. Um, and so that's another feature that's kind of built in with this course as well. So for those first two modules, um, the, um, the uh, information is uh, the, those first two modules are available at no charge. Um, if uh, you're interested in checking it out, um, the link to sign up for the, for my newsletter is in the show notes. If you're listening to this as a podcast, or if you're watching this on YouTube, then it's down in the description below. So uh, without further ado, I will just pause the recording for a second and I'll be back in two shakes with Dr. Tambrick. 
All right, everyone. So I'm back now with Dr. Tim Burek. Um, so thank you so much for joining me today. You're welcome. And Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, my, my pleasure. And yeah, I've been looking forward to this one for a while because as you know, we've corresponded a little bit about the vitamin D receptor resistance. And it's something that I've been yeah, testing a lot of patients for. Some patients have started on the treatment. So I'm yeah, excited to pick your brain because it's still so new for me, but I know you're an, an old hand at it. So um, just before we jump into the meat and potatoes of talking about this topic, um, would you mind just giving the listeners a bit of a brief background on um, sort of uh, who you are, what your practice is like, and how you got into uh, um, working with um, uh, treating patients dealing with complex uh, chronic health issues. Mm -hmm. well, thank you. Um, so I'm a naturopathic doctor practicing in Vancouver, British Columbia, here in Canada. Uh, I've been in practice um, 70 for 17 years now. Prior to that, I uh, studied psychology. And prior to that, I studied conventional medicine. Uh, so what led me to um, uh, focus on autoimmune diseases is my personal journey when I was in medical school um, and also patients uh, that I was helping uh, as an ND. Uh, basically, um, even when I was in, in, in school, one of my mentors uh, told me that uh, I will be focusing on autoimmune disease. Hmm. So... Um, so that became uh, true. So one of the patients who has MS uh, um, asked me to uh, follow her on uh, with the vitamin D protocol, which is also called Dr. Quimbra's protocol. Um, and that's how the journey started. Um, basically, it doesn't only treat MS, but treats all uh, majority of chronic diseases, especially autoimmune diseases. So that's the focus of my practice. Yeah, that's fantastic. And roughly how long you've been working with the Dr. Crumbrose protocol? So since 2006. Okay, great. And, um, and I don't remember now off the top of my head, but roughly like how long is he, how long has he kind of been working with the protocol himself? Like how long has this been uh, out there for? 2016. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think uh, he's been working with protocol about a decade now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, I've been working with it for seven years. Um, uh, so I got trained pretty early on. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, uh, the protocol has been amazing. Uh, and those that are not familiar with that should get familiar because, uh, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a great, um, replacement for all the toxic drugs that patients are on and that are not working. Um, and uh, with the proper education and training, um, all doctors should start uh, using this protocol because there's so many patients that need help out there. Mm -hmm. And I think Canada in particular, it hasn't been that popular as it has been in US and Europe mm -hmm. and the rest of the world, obviously Brazil. Yeah. So and, and... we like to invite if there are any of our colleagues or other um, people um, who, are, who are in medical profession, um, they should, uh, I would like to encourage them to start using this protocol. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I, it's, I, my understanding is um, unless someone finds a very, uh, you know, a mentor who's generous with their time, as you have been, you know, sharing resources with me, which I greatly appreciate. Um, otherwise it's just traveling down to Brazil to study, study with Dr. Yes, Coimbra. Yes, <laughs> 
yeah so yes but uh dr Greenberg uh, volunteered his time with all the doctors uh mm -hmm. and i'm so thankful for uh his knowledge and time and uh that he shares with everybody mm -hmm. uh, and he's burnt out pretty much so uh, mm -hmm. It is very difficult, but uh, we are here and happy to share the knowledge. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, that's great. Um, do you know how many uh, clinicians are in Canada that are using this protocol, roughly? So it's it's just myself uh, right now, and uh, you are the the next one. <laughs> um, second generation. Second generation. So. Yeah, we need more people for sure. Yeah, yeah, two two's not enough. Um, yeah. Do you know? Do you know roughly uh, how many clinicians are in uh, the U.S.? As I know, a lot of my listen our listeners here are uh, from no, the U.S. Yeah, I don't know exactly the number, uh, but there are some on the West Coast, uh, in Washington, uh, in Arizona, and then Florida. From what I know, mm -hmm. not too many, not yeah. too many either, but more than in Canada. Right. Yeah. Yeah, the well, list can be found on Dr. Quimbra, uh website with all right. practitioners. Yeah, right. Yeah, and I'll I'll post a link to that in the show notes for folks for convenience. But yeah, that's that's how I came across your name. So yeah, that's uh, glad glad you're on there. Um, so just for uh, listeners, um, as I know some some folks, I've been chatting about this a bit in my social media and, and my newsletters and things. But I think a lot of folks are just not really familiar with what what is vitamin D receptor resistance. So would you mind um just giving an overview of what that issue actually is mm -hmm. so to begin with uh, uh we still haven't answered the question is it the disease that has caused the vitamin d deficiency or is it the vitamin d deficiency that increases the risk of of autoimmune disease so when we take that into account then we we can start thinking about why do we have vdr receptor resistance is it uh, the cellular toxicity that is preventing uh, the absorption of vitamin D? Is it the right form of vitamin D? Is it genetic mutation? Um, so we, this is what's happening. So the way there, there is kind of a way to overcome that. And with everything that we have in our toolbox, uh, we can use to, uh, first of all, um, remove that cellular toxicity and then see if the absorption is increased. We can increase the dose of vitamin D significantly to overcome that resistance as well. So um, we we have to take into account the, the whole body and uh, the state of health um, or state of dis-ease um, in order to overcome that issue. So... I think that environmental toxicity plays a huge role in this resistance. I think that environmental toxins and glyphosates and other toxic chemicals that are found in our food and, and environment affect these receptors. Because this efficiency has been around since I was a student. That was one of our questions from what I remember. Mm -hmm. uh, this was the biggest deficiency, right? Uh, mm -hmm. in the world and as we know uh, the increasing level of toxicity in our world and also the ozone layer so the harder the um, ability to absorb vitamin d mm -hmm. yeah um so maybe just to um, could you describe for 
um, listeners a, a little bit more like, so um, the idea that like, there's this resistance, like I understand there's kind of this more yeah. speculation around what's actually driving the problem. Is it kind of a chicken or the egg thing maybe with the, the mm -hmm. receptor resistance, but um, what exactly is happening like with vitamin D receptor resistance itself, like at the receptor level? Uh -huh. So um, um, the 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 vitamin D doesn't get absorbed, and so it doesn't uh, um, um, doesn't do its job. Um, and uh, when you increase the dose of vitamin D, uh, um, you can push the body to change that resistance. So, um, I mean, an analogy I've been using with my patients and I, I might have my th things wrong. So please, please let me know. Uh, I've been kind of using the analogy that, um, you know, a person might have lots of vitamin D in their bloodstream and yet it's not actually working on a receptor level. So the analogy I've been using is if a person had, you know, a million dollars in their pocket and they want to go on a shopping spree, um, but none of the stores will actually take their money. It's like they have all this money, but it's not doing them any good. Like I have all this vitamin D in my blood, but it's not actually binding to the receptor or the, when it binds to the receptor, it's not actually transmitting the signal to the cell to tell the cell to reduce inflammation or improve mitochondrial function or reduce, um, you know, hypersensitivities to things. Is that a fair way to describe it or am I? That's, that's correct. That's exactly what's going on. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, yeah, I know <clears throat> part of me, when I first start talking to patients about this, you know, sometimes they'll say, well, like I had my vitamin D tested and it was like at 150, uh, which that using, you know, Canadian units slash non-American units, uh, that would be around, uh, what is that, uh, divided by 2.5, uh, whatever that number is. Uh, so maybe around. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we want it. It's, um, yes, 80. 80. Thank you. Yes, 80. Um, so if, um, and so they would say, oh, well, that's, um, uh, you know, like yeah, I, I have good levels and yet like, you know, so I must not have this issue and it's like, well, no, no, like you have plenty in your bloodstream, but it's not actually working on a cellular level is, is the way I've been describing right. it. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Okay, great. Um, <clears throat> so, um, in, in terms of what you see in clinical practice, um, I like to talk about autoimmune conditions first. And then if we could talk about some non-autoimmune conditions, if you don't mind. Um, so which uh, autoimmune conditions have you seen the most benefit um, for uh, in terms of using this protocol with? So multiple sclerosis uh, um, has had the best response um, because there's um, most of the research has been done in multiple sclerosis. And if you look at the receptors, they're, they're found on uh, neurons uh, and uh, they help regenerate, the vitamin D helps regenerate myelin. So the, the most uh, obvious results are seen in, in those cases. Um, in rheumatoid arthritis, uh, in psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis, uh, vitiligo, uh, even though that's a slower process, um, because you expect to see some uh, pigmentation coming back mm -hmm. and that's really uh, an objective symptom right however at the cellular level uh, you are stopping the progression of disease which patient is not aware of uh, because they're only relying on on, on the visible uh, changes um, uh, I've worked with transfers myelitis um, uh, all kinds of other um uh, autoimmune diseases, uh, uh, diabetes one. Um, there's more research needed in that area. We know that um, uh, it reduces um, the blood sugar spikes. 
Um, however, it is really hard to do research on diabetes one uh, without the use of insulin uh, to to know exactly what's doing the work. But amazing results with multiple sclerosis. Amazing. Yeah. Um, would you mind maybe just giving like a couple of little um, clinical anecdotes, like in terms of what you've seen, like in terms of um, some amazing results with uh, MS? Yeah. So with MS, uh, obviously we know the different grades or levels of the damage uh, and diagnosis there. Uh, collapsing remitting MS, which is uh, has the highest response to to the therapy. Also, the response will depend on the um, uh, uh, on the time the patient has had the problem. Um, certainly, you catch it and start with the protocol. The better response. And some patients uh, who have been diagnosed with relapsing remitting that started the protocol within. Um, months of diagnosis without starting the therapy uh, had an amazing uh, remission. Um, and uh, within two months, uh, the, the symptoms would go away, the electricity, the um, hermit sign, um, their walking would improve, and things like that. Um, um, so also, um, uh, Patients uh, who who decided to stop the drug and do the vitamin D um, uh, also had better response than those that uh, were on the drug and on vitamin D uh, because you're kind of um, trying to pull uh, the opposite sides with the treatment. So, um, yeah, um, I can't say that many people who are in uh, pr primary progressives or secondary progressive have started walking after, uh, but definitely their MRIs have shown um, uh, uh, termination of new lesions or um, progression in general, which is definitely the goal of this therapy, right? It's not cure for all. Let's make that really clear. It is like a type of a steroid hormone. It's not just a vitamin. So uh, if we think that, then it will suppress the further deterioration and progression of the disease, which is the goal of this therapy, right? Um, yep. That's great. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, just a, a quick little follow-up question to that. Um, as I, I have couple of patients that uh with, with an MS diagnosis who've been excited about uh, me chatting with you and they're they're looking forward to this uh this interview being published um and uh so for folks with say an MS diagnosis and let's say they have mild to moderate symptoms um you know they're they're certainly not you know wheelchair bound or anything like that um if so say there's a case where uh this protocol is initiated and let let's just say hypothetically that there's you know a, a, a 25 to 50 percent improvement in clinical symptoms um and that and they kind of hit a plateau there which is pretty darn amazing in the grand scheme of things mm -hmm. um <clears throat> then they find the right dose to kind of stick with with their vitamin d um in, in your experience or from what you know from dr coimbra's experience um would those would it be expected that those patients at the right dose of vitamin d would kind of maintain that level of um, improvement uh, long term, or would it be co more common to see like just a slower degradation, like a worsening over time? 
So the um, patients in general, once you find that plateau and that dose that works for them, mm-hmm. uh, would maintain their their state. Um, uh, if there are any insults from the outside, mental, emotional, physical flu or a virus or an infection or use of antibiotics for an infection, that may temporarily cause a relapse. Mm-hmm. But we manage that with the change of the dosage temporarily, and then they mm-hmm. can go on their maintenance dose. In right. some cases, I've had patients, for example, with rheumatoid arthritis as well as MS, that were able to lower their dose even lower than what their plateau dose was if they made other lifestyle changes. Okay, great. Right? That's great. Um, but and- for most of the patients, they will have to stay on some higher, relatively higher dose of vitamin D for a long time, unless they have a huge miraculous healing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and actually, that, that was going to be one of my future questions here. So since we're on this topic already, um, is that the case with patients who are have non-autoimmune conditions as well? Um, that they would typically need to stay on some type of a higher dose of vitamin D long term, or are there other conditions like if say a person has you know mold toxicity or chronic infections like with Lyme disease or whatnot, would they get to the point where like once the infection's fully you know cleared and all that there or the the molds finally you know all out of their system, would they get to the point where they don't need to stay on the vitamin D at a high dose long term? Right. They won't need to stay. Yeah, okay. it's mainly for autoimmune diseases okay. in which to actually block the inflammatory marker. Right. Okay, great. Um, and um, and so another question is um, in terms of listen, we talked about you know autoimmune conditions that you've seen uh, this this uh, benefit this protocol benefit the most. Uh, what types of non autoimmune conditions have you seen the most improvements with? Um, so um, with um, osteoporosis, for example, hmm. with sports injuries. Um, um, with depression, um, that's one of the uh, um, uh, main uh, non autoimmune disorders that vitamin D helps. Uh, if you have somebody who has been depressed, you should definitely check their vitamin D levels. I think that's even been accepted in the conventional world. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, regulating blood sugar levels in general, like diabetes 2, which is non-autoimmune, uh, mm-hmm. uh, also helps regulate their blood sugar. Mm. Um, um, so musculoskeletal, cardiovascular, right? Um, uh, contrary to the belief that vitamin high levels of vitamin D actually block the arteries is not very true if it's used properly. Mm-hmm. Uh, it will decrease the inflammation uh, in the vessels. Uh, so um, it will lower down cholesterol. Uh, so yeah, a lot of metabolic conditions, um, cardiovascular, musculoskeletal, including osteopenia, osteoporosis, um, uh, injuries, um, and general immune system, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, without treating the autoimmune component. Um, yeah, obviously colds and things like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So depression yeah. is huge. Also, I remember Dr. Greenberg saying, you know, all those students that fall asleep during lectures, 
they're all deficient in vitamin D. Okay. Duly noted. Um, yeah. And would that include like depression just in general or be more like seasonal affective disorder type patterns or like just year round depression? depression in general, not just SADs. Wow. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, is that, I mean, a, <clears throat> what uh, percentage of the time would you say that if you have patients who are depressed um, and you run the testing to determine if they have vitamin D receptor resistance, like how often is it coming up in that patient population? Actually, very often you'd be surprised. Yeah. 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 Like, like, I think the majority of people are yeah. deficient in vitamin D. They don't have the optimal levels anyway, even though, like we said at the beginning, they're within the range. Mm -hmm. It's just impossible. Majority of people spend, uh, regardless of how healthy they are and how healthy they're eating, mm -hmm. uh, majority of people are working right full time and they're spending time indoors. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm just uh, in Canada, especially for us on the West Coast, just not enough sun, mm -hmm. not enough sun exposure. Right. Um, and so in terms of the kind of uh, just with the depression, um, the response rate, like, so, you know, majority of patients that you test, they wind up having, you know, the objective signs on lab results of having um, vitamin D receptor resistance. Um, what percentage of patients roughly would like actually like would clinically improve significantly like, is it the majority that improve with vitamin D repletion? Well, I can't say percentage-wise, but uh, um, majority of patients improve. When I put them in vitamin D, I would put them in 10,000 IUs daily. Mm -hmm. and Their energy levels will improve. Their overall functionality would improve. Of course, right. without the things that we introduce, but that, that's the major player. Right. In, in those it's days. not going to replace uh, cognitive behavioral therapies or counseling sure. or other other things, right, uh, right. but uh, oftentimes there are these nutritional deficiencies. There's also other work that Dr. Marty Heinz, who is a neuro uh, neurologist and researcher, who uh, says that all these mental health disorders have nutritional deficiencies, mm -hmm. um, so that's the main cause of their disorders. Right. The deficiency that may be putting into that state uh, of depression, and that that affects the rest of your um, lifestyle, right? Right. The way you communicate. So, yeah. So, in those types of cases, um, like if say a patient walks in with depression as you know one of their chief concerns to, for seeing you, would you generally bother testing them, or would you just kind of say, I, would, oh. I, I test well, most of the people. Yeah. There. Yeah. Okay. I do like to test, yes. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, better for a patient to know, also. Mm -hmm. test that. Sure, yeah, it always <laughs> helps to see it on paper for sure. Um, and uh, I have a couple more questions for you about some non-autoimmune conditions, but this is a good reminder to myself to mention that uh, no, um, nothing that we're talking about today should be construed as medical advice. This is all for informational purposes only. If you need any medical advice, please talk to your personal healthcare provider to get that advice. So just clar clarifying that for all the listeners out there. Um, one other uh, question I have for you about a non-autoimmune condition. Um, have you seen uh, vitamin D uh, receptor uh, resistance much in uh, patients with um, polymyalgia rheumatica? Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. yes. Uh, lately, I've, I've been seeing more and more of uh, those kinds of patients. Yeah, me too. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's more yeah. common. Yeah. yeah. So 
Um, and then in terms of, uh, I know we kind of briefly touched on it um, a, a few minutes ago, but um, in terms of say mold toxicity or chronic Lyme disease or other chronic infections, you know, Epstein-Barr virus reactivation, different conditions like that, um, uh, how often would you say you're finding vitamin D receptor resistance being an issue for those types of patients? Um, like I said, in majority of patients, majority of patients that have these types of chronic diseases or mm -hmm. toxicities, their levels would be low right. because their receptors are occupied by toxins, right? So vitamin D cannot bind, right? Mm -hmm. uh, with Lyme disease in particular, some some people out there in our world believe that uh, all MS is actually Lyme. I'm not making that statement. I'm just saying what yeah. has been found in research and what yeah. some people are thinking. So um, those people that have MS symptoms due to Lyme and actually on MRI have lesions in the brain oftentimes will require longer supplementation with vitamin D. Mm -hmm. in order to manage their symptoms um, or prevent new lesions in the brain. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and uh, just uh, one thing I don't think we've touched on yet um, is just if you wouldn't mind explaining to the listeners how, um, like what the objective test is to determine if somebody has vitamin D receptor resistance. So we do 25-hydroxy and 125-hydroxy, two types of vitamin D. And we also test for parathyroid hormone function and calcium levels. Um, and uh, without getting into the, the details of it, but uh, what are what are the types of like, um, so a person comes back, say they're 25-hydroxy vitamin D, which would be the type that's, you know, most commonly tested for. So let's say that looks really good. That's, you know, mid-range or upper end of normal. Um, what would be some of the abnormalities um, or the, the findings of the parathyroid hormone or the 125-hydroxy vitamin D that might come up where you'd say, oh, it looks like we might be dealing with a vitamin D receptor resistance here. Mm -hmm. So oftentimes their PTH uh, levels would be higher, uh, not necessarily out of range, and also 125 would be higher, but uh, um, the the 25 hydroxy would be in the normal normal range. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and then um, as say a patient is, you know, so the patient comes back, they, let's say they have, you know, multiple sclerosis or they have, you know, mold toxicity, let's say their levels come back, they have elevated um, 125 hydroxy vitamin D, they have elevated PTH or like higher than where it should be. Um, so they're uh, put on a higher dose vitamin D regimen. Um, how would the labs be tracked? Um, like say at a, at a next step to see if the numbers are coming down. Of course, we're hoping the patient's feeling better, but what would be, we, what would we be looking for, um, clinic or objectively with those lab testing findings on a follow-up test? So yeah, the follow-up test should show change in uh, PTH levels mm -hmm. should be going down and uh, with 25 hydroxy levels will be going up significantly if they have mm -hmm. a good response. Right. Um, is there ever a case where, or have you seen cases where say the vitamin D, like say the 25 hydroxy vitamin D level gets to the point where, you know, at least labs that I'm used to seeing um, up to a certain point, they'll say we can't detect beyond this number. Like usually it's like greater than 350 or greater than 400, depending on the lab. Um, mm -hmm. So they'll, their levels will get to that like very high, like, you know, can't detect higher, um, you know, levels of vitamin D mm -hmm. um, before you actually start to see the PTH dropping. 
or do you does the PTH always start dropping? It's quite normal. Oh, it's quite it? normal to go into these what they call toxic levels mm-hmm. uh, of vitamin D um, beyond detectable range in some labs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's quite normal. Mm-hmm. And not to be worried about that if we see mm-hmm. change in PTH. Right. With with your um, with the labs that you're used to seeing, um, do they typically report it as potentially toxic, or do they always say that it's toxic when it's above a certain amount on the report? I'm just Often curious. Sometimes reported it's toxic. Yeah. It does say toxic, okay? Yeah. Yep. Then you get a call or a letter from the doctor or a note. Mm-hmm. Right. Has toxic levels. So. Right. Um, so to, to my understanding, um, the, you know, potential toxic effects from vitamin D would come from hypercalcemia. So too much calcium in the blood. Um, and just in your experience where, you know, some of the folks that you've worked with are taking, you know, very, very, very high levels of vitamin D. Um, how often is it that, um, you see, um, actual hypercalcemia in the bloodstream? I would say 10% of patients have hyper hypercalcemia. And that may have different reasons that may happen due to different reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are also patients who are on um, uh, hundreds and 150 and up to 200,000 IUs and they don't have hypercalcemia. Mm-hmm. So we really have to look at what's causing hypercalcemia. Is it just a vitamin D or is it the water they're drinking? Is it that they're eating too much calcium mm-hmm. or that they have heavy metal toxicity? Um, that's causing this. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and uh, with some of the side effects of, or the, the symptoms, I should say, of hypercalcemia um, is because, you know, the big concerns, at least uh, in my mind of what I recall from naturopathic school and studying for board exams and all these things um, is, you know, uh, if uh, hypercalcemia progresses to a certain point, it can start to have like, you know, heart rate irregularities, can start to have mental confusion, like it can be pretty darn serious. Um, the patients that you have seen, like say the 10% who do develop um, hypercalcemia, um, do do they kind of go from like feeling okay to like having those extreme symptoms or do they start having some low grade symptoms along the way? And if so, what would those initial symptoms typically be? Actually, uh, majority of my patients who have had hypercalcemia, hypercalcemia was just detected on a regular follow-up lab work without any significant symptoms. Mm Mm-hmm. Their milder symptoms, if they do have, may have milder symptoms, like they would have more cramping mm-hmm. or uh, or they would feel more fatigued suddenly mm-hmm. or uh, they'd be more thirsty. That's kind of one of the symptoms. Uh, they would experience more dryness in general. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't really had experience with this uh extensive thirst not not relieved by drinking water which is kind of one of the telltale signs mm-hmm. if you had hypercalcemia right. mainly people have had fatigue and dryness a little bit and cramping increased mm-hmm. cramping suddenly okay can't walk again mm-hmm. as well as they did before right um, and I know one of the other concerns. But some uh, people would have would actually feel great. Like yesterday, I had a uh, patient. She's a forty-seven year old female, and she uh, she was actually feeling great after we've uh, increased her dose of vitamin D. Uh, majority of her symptoms have actually resolved, 
Uh, and when we did the lab, uh, she had mild hypercalcemia, right, without any obvious symptoms. So it's really important mm -hmm. to do follow-up lab work. Right. Especially with 24 urine. Right. Um, and I, I know another potential uh, side effect of having elevated levels of calcium, maybe not actual full-blown um, uh, hypercalcemia, but just having more calcium, you know, in the bloodstream um, in general, filtering through the kidneys, there's some risk of a possible increased risk of kidney stones. I know that's something that was in the notes that you sent me from, from Dr. Corumba's recommendations. Um, do you know how often it is that folks doing this protocol have um, like develop kidney stones? Is it more quite a bit more often than the average person? Uh, you know what I, what I've noticed, I had only few patients who have developed kidney stones, very few patients out of hundreds mm -hmm. who had kidney stones develop actually during protocol. The thing is we, we actually, um, unless we order an ultrasound before the start of the protocol, we don't know if they've had stones before mm -hmm. and it was just an aggravation. Uh, sometimes some cases I've had with people where GFR has gone down, the, the filtration of the kidney or kidney function has decreased, mm -hmm. uh, which uh, can be recovered really easily, which we've done in the past. So um, with the kidney stones, it's not as common as you would think, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's primarily due to the the. Uh, already existing condition uh, that may have just been aggravated and patient hasn't really been uh, fully compliant with the protocol requirements. Mm -hmm. um, and would that be more around like not staying hydrated enough or they're eating too many higher calcium foods? Correct. Oftentimes they're not hydrated enough, which I understand it's a challenge for MS patients, a huge challenge because they deal with urinary incontinence oftentimes and urogenic bladder. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, but it's very, very important to stick with the protocol guidelines, and then there will be no no problems. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, actually, one and question. diet, sorry, diet is very important, as we know, uh, uh, because lots of foods contained that are healthy for us, if not cooked and consumed properly, have high levels of oxalates, and it's actually mm -hmm. oxalate binding to the excess calcium that's being filtered through kidneys that creates these stones. Right. So is it generally recommended to try to avoid higher oxalate foods? Well, not necessarily. Um, that's been misunderstood in general. And I'm speaking uh, mainly of the green leafy vegetables that are really good for us. Mm. Uh, it's how you eat those vegetables. They're not meant to be eaten raw because mm -hmm. in all states they have high levels of oxalates once they've been cooked steamed uh stir fried whatever it deactivates the oxalates so they're no more uh, uh problem for for us okay great um and uh kind of oh uh, circling back to just a question from earlier i forgot to ask because i want no one of my patients who's very very excited about uh getting the ball rolling with this protocol um she uh she has vitiligo and i know you mentioned that it can be kind of a longer process there because of the you know skin depigmentation and whatnot um generally speaking with vitiligo um how frequently does the um the correct dose of vitamin d kind of like halt the vitiligo in its tracks. Like I understand the repigmentation might be a, a long process that might only reach a certain point, but um, yeah, how often would it kind of stop the progression of further vitiligo spreading? 
Um, it's very effective. There's actually a paper that's been done specifically on vitiligo. Um, yes, with the use of high doses. This was done by another doctor endocrinologist that works with Dr. Coimbra in Brazil. Mm -hmm. uh, and they've been successful uh, uh, with that with that disease in particular. Um, so very quickly, these patients respond, like I said before, it's just really, uh, we can see improvement and response with the lab without objective, um, other, uh, I should say subjective symptoms or observation of the skin, right? It's just mm -hmm. people generally start feeling better, um, their energy levels increase and there's no more new, um, depigmentation happening. Mm -hmm. And, so uh, in the research, it has been proven to work uh, for vitiligo patients. Yeah, that's great. Um, and say for a patient with, say, vitiligo or other, um, maybe other conditions where, I mean, with vitiligo, if it's kind of a matter of like, okay, so it's not spreading more. So I'm at my certain dose of vitamin D. Um, I see that my parathyroid hormone levels come down and it's at a, it's at a good place now. Like it's a pro appropriate ratio with the vitamin D level. Um at that point, would you be kind of just monitoring their, because clinically, if you say to them one day, like, hey, how's the vitiligo going? You're like, well, they don't know, right? Like, it's not like you're going to be able to tell day to day how, it, how it's um, going, if it's still being held at bay. So would you be um, over the course of time trying to lower their vitamin D dosage and then periodically checking to see, is the parathyroid hormone now going up too high? Or would you just hold them at a certain dose and just, you know, say, let's just not mess with a good thing. Let's just keep it there. Uh, how, how would you manage a case where the patient couldn't really tell if lowering their dose was clinically making them worse because the symptoms are too subtle or slow moving? And you have to really rely on lab yeah, uh, and your general state of being, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, one good thing about uh, vitiligo is that those patients often don't have to go an extremely high dose that we use for MS. Okay. Because it's not a um, uh, such degenerative disease or life-threatening like it is uh, with MS. Um, uh, so um, you don't have to go as high. So it's a little bit easier to manage in general, mm -hmm. a good response. Mm -hmm. So in those cases, I would keep checking their PTH levels. Um, and based on that and the overall state of health, um, decide whether to keep them on, on a fairly high dose for the general uh, public mm -hmm. um, and keep checking the levels, right? Um, they probably need to reach certain saturation in the skin uh, in order for the skin to change and as well work on other um, things, not just rely on vitamin D. Right. But I also with uh, with uh, uh, with Ligo, uh, I've I've also used vitamin D topically in addition to the oral supplementation. Okay. Mm -hmm. you can go high dose of vitamin D mm. in a cream and then apply that at least to one of the areas that is maybe more visible and see if it makes any difference. Okay, I've had cases who have responded to that. Same with psoriasis. Great, great. Um. <clears throat> I've had a, a couple of patients, two, actually three um, that I can think of for sure, who um, seem to be very, very sensitive to vitamin D. Um, they seem to flare like a, a couple of them. I think one can 
take maybe like 500 international units a day and, and tolerates it well, but the other two um, just can't take any, it seems, uh, which of course is on the one hand a bit counterintuitive because they're, you know, not having to hide from the sun all the time. Um, so they're obviously, you know, they have vitamin D in their body. They can't actually be genuinely allergic to it. Um, and yet the oral vitamin D, like they just flare like crazy. Um, now these patients are also sensitive to other things too, but they're not, you know, universal reactors where they flare from every supplement under the sun. Like there are, you know, say maybe a dozen things that they've been able to tolerate over the course of time, but they do flare from lots and lots of different things. And I'm just wondering if you've encountered patients um, like that, where um, being able to actually, I'm thinking of another patient now off the top of my head where she can take up to, I think about 4,000 or 5,000 I use a day, but whenever she try, has tried to go up to 6,000, she gets a flare up like her fatigue worsens, or um, I think maybe insomnia gets worse or something like that. So I'm just wondering, have you encountered patients like that? And if so, um, any advice on how to circumvent those, those challenges? Yeah, yeah. So yes, I've had patients like that, not very many. Mm -hmm. uh, I had Hashimoto patients actually being very sensitive to vitamin D uh, mm -hmm. and full of worsening, messing up with their um, endocrine system, the physiology in general. So we've lowered it down to fairly high dose, uh, maybe 5,000 or 10,000 at the most, and they're fine with that dose. So um, also we have to look at the uh, um, source of vitamin D that they're taking. Maybe mm -hmm. they're allergic to certain components in the vitamin, right? Mm -hmm. uh, maybe they, they can't absorb uh, fats. So giving lipotropic factors and supporting their fat metabolism might mm -hmm. be an issue. Mm -hmm. Or um, they they really um, um, have so much toxicity that uh, the body's rejecting because uh, the toxins, as we know, bind to fat or they're stored in fat. So um, um, kind of working around, it's always the best before starting a protocol to really detoxify the body, right? And to make sure that the body functions properly. It's kind mm -hmm. of what we call it, reboot the body or reset the physiology. Mm -hmm. Because if that's not working properly, then they will be really struggling. The other point I want to make is with those people that have aggravation after slightly increasing their vitamin D, and then they're getting fatigue, their symptoms worse, etc. It means that the dose is not high enough. Hmm. Because you've stimulated now the immune system, but it's not enough of medicine to overcome the inflammation. Okay. Hmm. So oftentimes, really doubling up the dose even more, increasing, even if it's temporarily, mm -hmm. will help overcome those symptoms. Hmm. So, like yeah. recently, I want to mention this case. Um, uh, he has a mess and he was in really bad state. Uh, he was pretty much bound to wheelchair, just being diagnosed. And uh, because of his labs, I think his, his PTH was already low. And uh, vitamin D was not uh, extremely low, but on the lower normal. And so his dose was maybe uh, wasn't measured based on um, on the proper uh, measurements for his weight. Uh, so we started at the higher higher dose, but uh, lower than you would normally based on on his weight. And uh, he had these crises along the way um, where he would get worse, but he persisted. 
uh, and uh, after two months, he actually started feeling better when the levels of vitamin Ds have accumulated and um, uh, then he, he, his symptoms started to improve. But once I've really increased his dose, he significantly got better. Great. So it, it's maybe a but little bit important to do the loading at the beginning before giving uh, uh, the right dose. Right. So for, so for some of those patients, it's maybe a little bit counterintuitive because I know at least my mindset for the most part is like, oh, I'm starting the patient on their herbs to treat the infection and they're feeling worse. Like, oh, the dose is probably too high. I need to back off so they can ease into it. But in, in this case, sometimes you actually want to increase the dose further of the vitamin D to, um, Correct. Correct. Because, yeah. you know, um, we need to find out if the patient is going through a healing crisis mm. or the progression of the disease. Sure. So that's an important, if it, it's just a healing crisis, you either support it with more nutraceuticals or whatever else you're using in your practice. Um, and um, the patient will improve and get through that hump Whereas if we see progression of disease, it's a different story, right? Right. To be able to assess that. Right. Um, have there been any patients you've worked with who have um, needed to or done better with um, intramuscular uh, vitamin D as an injection? Uh, you know, a lot of my patients are remote and I haven't had the chance to really explore that option. Mm -hmm. Okay. But I can't say because you have to inject into fat tissue, right? And I, I am not sure how well is it absorbed. Mm. Okay. Yeah, I've had... I've had that would be more convenient. Uh, so I just read the research showing that uh, the levels of vitamin D have reached the same level, regardless of whether, for example, patient has been taking 2,000 IUs a day or uh, for a month, uh, as opposed to giving them, for example, 60,000 IUs a month mm -hmm. in, in one injection. Or, uh, this, the levels have been changed. However, in an autoimmune case, uh, it has been highly recommended to do daily dosing as opposed to weekly high-dose supplementation, which right. is generally done by uh, conventional medical doctors. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because I have seen that for, with autoimmune, I think this is important, uh, especially I've, I've witnessed this in Dr. Quimber's office uh, where a young teenage girl who had missed a few doses of vitamin D just uh, um, uh, not intentionally just happened and didn't report that. And then she had worsening of the symptoms in her lab also showed that that she has missed dose of vitamin D because with autoimmune patients, their levels start dropping again once they stop using vitamin D. Mm -hmm. So it's very important to keep that in mind. Okay, great. Um, and uh, just one question that popped, sprung to mind when we were chatting here. Um, uh, have you, are you aware of like in your own experience or of any other clinicians, um, looking at vitamin D receptor resistance in patients with cancer diagnoses? And is that something that, you know, of playing a role in, uh, oncology treatment at all? Yes, actually, as I forgot to mention that at the beginning, um, uh, if you test uh, cancer patients, uh, I'm sure the majority of that's part of your practice patients are low on vitamin D if they have cancer. 
and I think in in uh, uh, that's because of obviously intensity and severity of their and degenerate uh, their disease. Uh, uh, it's very common to find that and people who have been on, on higher doses of vitamin D, even starting with 10,000 a day, um, their conditioning system has improved. I think there's a lot of research uh, around using within cancer and even oncologists are now more open to using um, higher dose of vitamin D. Mm-hmm. The system, right? right. Yeah, I know there's definitely some literature showing that um, replenishing vitamin D is is gives you know better quality of life and and better prognosis for folks i guess i'm just wondering like are you aware of clinicians who might be using like you know kind of these mega doses of vitamin d as a as a synergistic factor uh, or or approach along with other interventions uh i'm actually not uh not familiar with any it doesn't mean that there aren't it's just Yeah, just just curious. Yeah, just where, of course, with cancer, there's a big immune system component there. And I'm just wondering if the vitamin D might be important for... uh, Yeah, very valid question. Yes, Mm -hmm. I I don't necessarily um, treat cancer per se. I do do supportive therapy for cancer patients Mm -hmm. that use conventional treatments. And I do put them on vitamin D, Mm -hmm. but I do not use super high dose of vitamin D. I haven't had the experience with that. When I'm saying super high, I'm talking 50,000 and up. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe some patients have used 50,000 a week uh, or so, which is not very high. But mm-hmm. uh, for some people, 10,000 is a lot too. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, it's all it's all relative, I suppose. Yeah, it's all relative, yeah. 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 Um, so, um, before we kind of start, uh, winding up the conversation here, um, at, at which point I'd like to ask you about, um, you know, how folks can get in touch with you if they'd like to work with you. Um, I'm just wondering, are there any other things that, um, we haven't covered or things you'd like to share about the protocol that I, I didn't think to ask about? Uh-huh. So what I want to, um, say is that, uh, patients that are going on the protocol, um, have to understand it's not a miracle cure. And not to give up too early uh, with the protocol, um, because what we've seen over time, it's the patients, right? It's to be patient and to follow the protocol guidelines mm-hmm. and also work on other aspects of their life that have led them to this state. It is as important as vitamin D itself. So when we say vitamin D protocol, it doesn't mean just ingesting high doses of vitamin D. It means lifestyle changes. It's huge. And Dr. Creamer emphasizes that all the time. Mm -hmm. The importance is as important as the high dose of vitamin D. It's just a vehicle to help you get to where you want to be. Taking care of other uh, parts of your life that are not in order right and we already know uh not to repeat myself but we know what those complemental emotional is huge Mm. as well as diet and uh um, lifestyle right exercise and uh yeah emotions play a huge role in all these autoimmune disorders as well as toxicity right 
Yeah, I suppose that that kind of speaks to what you were saying earlier in the conversation that, you know, again, it's kind of a chicken or egg thing, but if all of those lifestyle factors, et cetera, are so important, uh, it, I think it suggests to my mind, at least that they must be contributing to something happening with a vitamin D receptor that's kind of shifting it and altering it in such a way that it's not as responsive. So if you need that, you know, otherwise be like, oh, it doesn't matter if you fix lifestyle things like just the vitamin D is a miracle cure on its own. The fact it's synergistic with those other things suggests it must be, it must oh, yeah. be having an impact on the integrity of the receptor itself. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. Great. Well, um, uh, if folks are listening and they're thinking like, by golly, um, I'd really like to work with, you know, the, the person who's been doing this protocol in Canada for the longest, um, uh, and they want to work with you. Um, how can folks get in touch with you, um, to, to help them out with their cases? So I am at Vancouver Naturopathic Clinic, um, obviously in Vancouver, BC, uh, and uh, they can reach me through the office uh, at 604-738-2111. We do have a website, uh, and I have my own website, uh, natu uh, naturopathicclinic.com. And if they if they just enter my name, Dr. Sanya Timburic, uh, I'm sure they'll, they'll be able to find me. I'll, I'll put the website and phone number in the show notes. And so it'd be easy to find you. And um, do, do you work with folks um, that are outside of um, BC in some way, shape or form, like through case consultations with their primary clinician or anything like that? Or is it only uh, folks that are in BC itself? Uh, yes, um, because I am the only doctor uh, doing this protocol, I am able to do remote consultations. Otherwise, patients are encouraged in Canada to consult the doctor in their own province. Uh, now that you're available, obviously, um, uh, it will be easier. Um, uh, but other than that, I do work internationally with other people who are not in Canada as well remotely. So. Great. And so they can just kind of <clears throat> reach out to your office through your website or, or calling them and just figure out the details from there. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Great. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today, Dr. Tamburic. Uh, it was really, really great. I was really happy to have the chance to get to pick your brain about this because I've been thinking about this protocol a lot. And so thanks for sharing your knowledge with me previously. And thanks so much for sharing with us today. You're welcome. I'm glad you reached out to me and that we are spreading the word. Me too. Well, um, thank you so much to everyone who's listening. Uh, this concludes another episode of the Overcoming Chronic Illness podcast. And uh, stay tuned until next time.